The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the community. This created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Hello, everybody, and uh, welcome to this um, uh, seminar in the uh, Trinity College Dublin uh, Medical and Health Humanities Seminar Series. Uh, my name is Brendan Kelly. I'm a, a psychiatrist, and um, we're very happy today to uh, have with us Professor George McCary. And um, <clears throat> before we start, there are one or one or two things um, I would just like to like to say by way of introduction. Um, this is part of a series of seminars about uh, medical and health humanities, um, and I want to give a mention to our next one, which is on the 23rd of March, Professor Jane McNaughton from Durham, um, and that's entitled Making Breath Visible, a Medical Humanities Approach. So you can register for that on the website, and that is the 23rd of March, Professor Jane McNaughton. Today's event is a conversation. Um, it will be a discussion. There is a chat function. If you have a comment or an observation, please put it into the chat and we, we, we'll get around to that. Uh, there's a notice there from Shelby about doing that. Um, and we will, we will work our way around to this, um, to, to your comments and observations as we go along or else at the end. So um, I want to start by introducing uh, George McCary, a psychiatrist, historian and author most recently of, well, Soul Machine, the invention of the modern world, but even more recently this, of Fear and Strangers, a history of xenophobia, which is from a Yale University Press. And it's, it's a fantastic book, which we will talk about. Um, George is director of the DeWitt Wallace Institute of Psychiatry and professor of psychiatry um, at Weill Cornell Medical College. Um, and if I understand correctly, um, George, you're currently in your apartment in New York as you speak to us. Is that right? Indeed. Indeed. Very good. Well, thank you so much for joining us today and for talking about uh, talking about this book, which I which I read over the past six weeks or so. So it's called. Delighted off to be here. Thank you for having me, Brendan. Oh no, you're, you're uh, and, I, and I was delighted to visit to, to visit you just before the pandemic uh, for your uh, seminar series. So tell us a little bit about the book of Fear and Strangers, A History of Xenophobia. What, you, you're a psychiatrist, George. What, what, what brought you to this theme, this topic? Um, well, I, I had just finished, uh, I was actually on a bit of a book tour for a Soul Machine, which is a history of the kind of construction of the mind as a natural entity, mostly during the Enlightenment. Uh, and I was, in fact, in London uh, doing promotional talks, et cetera. Uh, and, uh, you know, there were really kind of three kind of pulls towards this kind of topic. The first was uh, I was having dinner with friends. They were talking about Brexit. They told me it definitely wouldn't happen. I told them that Donald Trump would never get elected. And we all turned out to be wrong. That was one thing that was uh, a pull towards this new word xenophobia that started to be bandied about quite a bit. The second was that from Soul Machine, I'd become interested in the problem of how minds know each other, the problem philosophers call the other mind problem. 
And, you know, it's kind of a philosophical and very abstract problem, but it started to seem like maybe there was a downstream kind of political effect of the ambiguity and anxiety of knowing each other's minds that xenophobia spoke to. Uh, and finally, you know, uh, I came to this very late in the game, but late in the game, I realized, of course, I am the son of immigrants. Uh, and uh, there is a personal stake in trying to understand this dynamic of host and stranger that is part of xenophobia and was part of my life. Okay, super. Well, look, let's maybe start with the personal first. Um, and you might take us all the way back to 1877 and your grandfather in a Lebanese fishing village. And how, how does, in what way is he responsible for this Zoom webinar today? <laughs> uh, very, very indirectly, he's responsible. So yeah, my namesake uh, uh, was a Greek Orthodox Christian in uh, you know what was then not called Lebanon, but was part of the Ottoman Empire, but he was in a coastal fishing village. And he, as a very young boy, eight years old, uh, uh, came to the United States with an uncle and aunt and uh, a cousin, uh, basically because the Ottoman oppression of uh, the Lebanese Christians was so intense that his parents thought as terrible as it was, he would have a better life in the United States. So it kind of long winding story. There are many yarns in my family about what happened to him. He went to Texas essentially, and really became a Texan. He was uh, uh, there for uh, uh, over 20 years. He started a little rug oriental rug business with his uh, brother who came over to in Austin, Texas. And then, you know, as fate would have it, he was uh, swept up by world events. He, want, he went back to Lebanon in 1914 to get Oriental rugs and to reacquaint himself with a place that he really didn't know. Uh, he had been there last when he was eight. Uh, uh, and World War I started. It was impossible to do kind of transatlantic uh, voyages. Uh, there was a huge famine that hit because the Ottomans commandeered the foodstuffs for their army. And... Uh, and so he stayed in Lebanon to help his family and and ended up resettling there as a basically Texan who had repatriated to Lebanon uh, and told my father lots of stories about cowboys and and chases and this and that. And, uh, you know, he had uh, both the stories of being treated very badly as uh, an Arab American but also great love for Texas and 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 the warmth of the culture. So my father, uh, you know, uh, who was a, a doctor and a scientist, uh, ended up getting fellowships to Harvard and came to the United States and uh, and essentially settled here with my mother, who was also from Lebanon. And uh, so long story, but that's how I end up growing up in suburban New Jersey with parents who speak, you know, Arabic and French. And I have some British kind of in them, and are this melange of 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 strangeness in uh, you know a country that's filled with strangers because the United States is all immigrants. Okay, and and uh, you know how how did this bring you to the to the topic? You know, you know, acknowledging the 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 story you've just described. What was there? something in it looking back that that brought this theme to the forefront of your mind in recent years 
I, I mean, honestly, the uh, impetus first was to uh, think about this problem because it seemed rather dangerous in the present. And in excavating the present, that's when I came upon, you know, both my personal past and uh, the kind of past that's encased in the word itself. So, yeah, no, there wasn't anything particular. I mean, sure, I was distressed by world events and uh, like many people were, but uh, it was really going from the present back, not something deep in the back that made me go forward. Okay. Okay. So turning to the word itself, xenophobia. So a phobia is, you know, uh, a condition. Maybe it's an illness uh, often, yeah. you know, social phobia, agoraphobia or what have right. you. Um, maybe you might talk a little bit about the word and the extent to which it has been regarded as an illness or a position or a political word or so forth. You touch on this yeah. in various ways throughout the book. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for that question. It's a big question. So, yeah, I thought when I was going to look into xenophobia that it was going to be a very short excursion into something that I have no expertise in, which is antiquity. Uh, you know, if you look in books on the history of racism or something of that sort, they very commonly say that xenophobia was coined during antiquity in Greece. It's two Greek uh, roots, and uh, and it's marched forward ever since. So that's what I thought the word was going to mean, and I would maybe have something interesting to say about how it was inflected during psychiatry's fervor for phobias in the late 19th century or something of that sort. But it turned out, in fact, that it was never coined in antiquity. There was no uh, term xenophobia in the extant record from uh, Greek antiquity. Uh, and uh, so, you know, then the hunt was on. And then the hunt did take me to uh, first the late 19th century when psychiatrists leave the asylum and start to do outpatient work and start to coin terms for a host of illnesses that weren't so commonly discussed in the asylum including the phobias. So the phobias start around 1870 with Carl Westphal, and then they start to blossom, and then they start to grow wild. And before you know it, there are 79 different kinds of phobias for every possible thing you can think of. Amongst those, xenophobia was one. It was not a particularly well thought of one. It was gonna you know, die a quick death, and uh, yeah, maybe later reemerges social phobia. But at that point, phobia meant something a little different than the Greek root. The Greek root phobos just means fear. The psychiatric word of phobia means irrational fear. So there's a, a stress on the fact that this is a threat that is not rationally processed. And that becomes then part of the legacy of how xenophobia is going to be seen. It's just not a normal fear for, for the xenos, which is the Greek word for kind of stranger and guest. Uh, it's an irrational fear. Uh, the second way that the term uh, immediately emerges, and they kind of are co-mingled uh, in the very beginning in the 1880s, is in a political context as a way of discussing ultranationalism. It is a way of discussing how nations, this is a kind of pregnant topic right now, can unify their diverse populations internally by finding an enemy externally that they then develop a kind of tradition of hatred and fear and irrational fear for. So Anglophobia and Francophobia were kind of the great examples of this. 
uh, but there were numerous examples. And then it was said by some that there were some states, Romania was said to be one, that were so unstable that they hated everybody, that they were xenophobic. Now you're laughing because you should laugh. It's such an exaggeration that no one was really going to take a stand for xenophobia as a real description of a, of a, of a nation state's psyche. Uh, and so that died as did the psychiatric definition, but both of them kind of help underlie the term when it goes viral about 20 years later in 1900 in a different context. Okay, so that's that's the most interesting interplay between what you know is ostensibly a, now a psychiatry term, phobia perhaps, and the, the if you like the politicization of it and the the idea of all for you know it, it applying to all all foreigners. I think um, you mentioned the current situation, and um, obviously some examples come to mind today at the Ukraine or Russia or whatever. But then so many other examples. Uh, seem to come to mind as well as people use this stoke up a fear of other define people as other and, and stoke up a fear based on them um, you know lines on maps or or dare I say walls in deserts um, that separate uh, really quite continuous or contiguous peoples. Okay, so 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 this is a very rich 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 term to, to 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 look into. And what surprised you the most as you as as you looked into it? You've mentioned it not really being there in antiquity. You've mentioned the way it emerged and how it might have changed. Was there anything that really took you aback or was not expected or changed your direction midway through the process here? Yeah, look, the fact that it wasn't Greek antiquity, as you say, was the first surprise. The second surprise, which was really quite shocking, is that the way the term went viral, I was expecting to be doing a history of a very highly kind of ethical uh, term that organized, you know, uh, resistance to a lot of racism and hatred. It turns out the term went viral, particularly and especially in a racist way and in a xenophobic way. So the term in 1900 is essentially a pretty archaic term from psychiatry and political uh, discourse. It goes viral in the context of colonialism, where it is said uh, that the boxer uprising in China is an uprising where it is true. They said, support the Qing, destroy the foreigners. That was their motto, all the foreigners, because there were so many different ones in China at that time. Uh, and so in the French newspapers in 1900, starting in July, there was this new term that emerged, uh, les xenophobes and xenophobie, and it went viral. It went viral so that in 10 years, it was in all the different languages of the different colonists and in all the different colonies where people worried about the same problem. And what it said was, these people are inferior. They have not evolved to understand that all strangers are not enemies. This critical equation that had to be broken for any kind of you know, complex culture or civilization to emerge. And therefore they just attack us randomly for no good reason. Not that we're stealing their land or indenturing their people or anything like that. No, it's because of this racial inferiority. The Chinese boxers are xenophobes. The, and then you can march it out to all the different colonies. It was said the Ethiopians were xenophobes, the Algerians were xenophobes, et cetera, et cetera. And so this was this kind of 
upside down usage that then the rest of the first half of the book is about how moralists and ethicists start to turn that phrase around, see it as an Orwellian use of the term and start to finally say, xenophobia is a very real phenomenon. It's something we need to think about as a self uh, kind of referential check on our partic particular ways of treating strangers and foreigners uh, horribly. So that's a kind of the 180 degree that happened to xenophobia, which by the way, isn't the only term that was undergoing this kind of Orwellian critique and then redefinition uh, because imperialism was gonna do the same thing. Racial science was gonna become racism. Uh, so there were a number of these terms that had been trotted out to justify empire that uh, were forcefully kind of turned around. Xenophobia was one of them, and that was uh, that's never I, no one had ever known that before. So that was a great surprise. Yeah, did, uh, you are, uh, you know, you're interested in the history of ideas, of which this is just one. Right. It is. It is always of interest when ideas are turned around, ideas that might have been. Um, you know, intended intended well, as it were, then get used in what is, to our eyes today, a way that is indefensible. And and you write about genocide uh, in 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 the book. And um, I suppose I have an interest in, you know, the role of psychiatry and psychiatrists, uh, part particularly, I, I I guess, in Nazi Germany and in the various. Um, you know, psychiatrists and psychiatry's participation in in that program um, and the history of eugenics in general yeah. and sort of this is our, my professions, our professions, sort of less than honorable uh, role in, in that. And yet many of the eugenicists were considered the, to the very forefront of scientific thinking and knowledge at the time. Yes. Um, I, do you have any thoughts or reflections about that that sort um, of that turning of ideas again? Yeah, quite a, quite a few. I mean, I, I think that uh, I completely agree with you. Um, and you know, one sees psychiatry as like the, you know, psychiatry is the tail, not the dog. You know, uh, and uh, it's wagged by the culture that it's part of. In general, uh, we like to think of ourselves as immune to those forces, but if you look at, uh, uh, you know, uh, at historical circumstance, there's at least a strong minority of folks in psychiatry, in the professional discipline, who are very happy to ratify, uh, you know, even the most heinous social views uh, and damn what happens to their patients. Uh, so yeah, the T4 movement in Nazi Germany is of course spurred by uh, eugenics, racial science, and, you know, there are very, very important psychiatrists who uh, lead the program. And that is the test case, killing the mentally ill and the disabled is the test run for killing uh, the Jews. So uh, we, we, we do know that. And my book involves the history of psychiatry in really two ways. One in that method of thinking about uh, human beings uh, as racial beings and, and the, the use of racial science to justify these atrocities. And then the second half of the book really is a little bit more uh, uplifting about the role after World War II of the behavioral sciences to try to understand why xenophobia happens. So if the first half of the book is about the kind of 
uh, uh, upside down birth of the term and its jet and its uh, reorientation after 1945. That reorientation occurs with the uh, dismantling of racial science, which only finally happens really with the extraordinary example of a Holocaust and a genocide. Uh, the second half of the book is really about how the behavioral sciences in all of its different domains, behavioralists, cognitive science, psychoanalysts, and even philosophers who think about self and other jump into the fray to try to figure out what causes xenophobia and what could therefore be done to stop it. So in that case, there's a lot more um, to be uh, admired in the way that mental health uh, scientists and doctors and professionals uh, uh, jump into the fray. Okay, so so possibly some signs of redemption um, for us, and um, certainly the hope that future generations don't view, you know, a lot of what you describe there in the second half of the book as being less honourable than we currently see it. Um, oh yeah, look, I, I actually think that there's a lot to. I'm going to push back a little bit on the way you framed the question. I think there's a lot to be. Uh, look, I, I don't think psychiatry needs to worry about whether it should be proud or not, but there's a lot to learn and a lot to benefit about the struggles we have today uh, by understanding how different, uh, you know, scientists of the mind uh, and the mind brain uh, tried to sort out this problem. In fact, this is a problem that's a psychopolitical problem. And people who address it as like rational economic actors or they don't grab at the problem. I mean, we're seeing it today uh, in spades with, with Russia. Problems like shame and resentment can be cultural powers that actually motivate events. And, uh, you know, so these are folks who try to understand the unreason behind the Nazi project. And we have a lot to learn from them. The problem has been that they're all in different silos. And you know this as well as I do, is that Psychiatry and the behavioral sciences can be very kind of riven between different silos. Each silo thinks they have all the answers and they diminish the other ones, but actually they're all partial answers. None of them actually exclude the others if you think about it. And that at the end of the book, I really try to put a framework together that says, all of these are partial answers. Here's a behaviorist contribution. Here's a cognitive science contribution. Here's a psychoanalytic contribution. And here's a sociological structuralist contribution. We need all of them. They all are partial answers. None of them actually hold all the water. And so I think of that as a, actually something to be, uh, you know, to to to, to be uh, very grateful for uh, in terms of what the last fifty years, sixty years of of uh, people focused on uh, hatred and discrimination. Uh, have uh, kind of laid out for us as as guides. Absolutely, but it's also something for us to be grateful for in your book because there aren't that many people with the sort of bandwidth or the, the vision to, to look at these different areas and try to weave them together and figure out how they work together or the extent to which these approaches are really different languages used to describe the same thing rather than separate things. And uh, we see this all the time say, between cognitive sciences and neurosciences or sociology. And, you know, I hear it from students saying there is a biological element to this, a psychological element to this, and a sociological one. 
and not entertaining the possibility there's just one thing happening and it's being described in different languages with which different people are um you know more at ease with um yeah. so so that's one of the real strengths of the book for those of you who are um, interested in this much much broader view outside of any one of these silos and do put any queries or questions that you might have into the chat as we go along before we get to the sort of the end and the final vision and, and, and so forth. I want to go back a wee little bit in the book to one of the figures that interests me because you touch on so many interesting figures. I want to ask a little bit about Franz Fanon, um, yeah. whom some people uh, in the audience might be familiar with and, and others not. Um, but, but, but you write about him a bit in a really interesting um, account of his his. Um, his, his trip to Rome in 1961 to meet one of his heroes. So maybe what role does Fanon play in this in this story or how would you characterize his, his, yeah. his part? You know, uh, uh, Fanon is a fascinating character and I, I don't uh, I don't pretend to be, uh, uh, you know, uh, utterly expert on, on his biography, um, but he is a black Martinique uh, uh, young man growing up therefore in a French colony his teacher in uh, in Martinique is the great M.A. César, the poet and, and statesman. Uh, and he decides to be a doctor and goes to France to be a doctor. He's deeply interested in literature, in surrealism. He writes surrealist plays while he's in medical school and starts to write a book uh, about how he is perceived as a black man in France. Uh, that book is going to become famous. He's going to publish it. Uh, uh, even before he goes off to get his first job. Uh, and uh, it's going to argue uh, using a lot of Adler and inferiority complex that there is a way that uh, the inferiority complex dominates uh, it, black white relations. Uh, and you know, he started to see this first as black white relations. Then he started to broaden out even further. So by the time he gets posted to Algeria uh, to be a psychiatrist there, an inpatient psychiatrist there, uh, he actually has a pretty powerfully formed vision, and the and and he, he said something that I that I find very striking. It's depressing, but it's also very very important as a kind of. Uh, uh, something to remember. He said, you know, I got to Algeria and I realized, I'm going to, as a paraphrase, the French hate the Jews who hate the Arabs who hate the Blacks. And you could see how he could see that the, 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 the carousel could keep going and it could go round and round and round. And there is something, in other words, he's saying deeper that we're not grasping at when we look at these things as all separate, right? So he, you know, wrote The Wretched of the Earth. Uh, he became a, re a revolutionary. Uh, he became a revolutionary in Algeria and then really for the colonies of North Africa. Uh, and at the same time was, was, was quite ill and was uh, dying of cancer. Uh, his, his hero, he said, was uh, a hero that many people held in high esteem and that was Jean-Paul Sartre. And so the trip to Rome is this kind of uh, this kind of telling moment that I write about, where he uh, is dying to meet Sartre. Sartre is an old man; he can't really go to France because Fanon thinks he'll probably be arrested. So uh, Beauvoir uh, meets him at the airport. They bring him to a place in Rome where Sartre is there, and he and Sartre supposedly talk 
deep into the night, uh, so much so that Beauvoir chides him for keeping the old man up so late. But the person who's really going to be actually uh, soon in his grave is Fanon. And, uh, you know, he's especially impressed by Sartre's book on anti-Semitism, uh, in which he uses the notion of the other, which he had brought forward from the French reading of Hegel, to try to make clear that France didn't have a Jewish problem. It had a French white, you know, I don't know exactly how to put Christian problem, I guess is the way, the right way of putting it. And that um, the, the anti-Semite took the Jew as the other, and he works out the kind of complications that this kind of creates for identity in France in a way that Fanon is going to talk about for, uh, you know, uh, the, the uh, colony, colonized African. Uh, and, you know, of course, the famous part of this is that Sartre is going to agree to write the preface to The Wretched of the Earth. It is an extraordinarily powerful piece of writing uh, that also makes the the claim that quite that quite outrageous claim that colonized people should murder the, their colonists and in so doing they would kill both the colonists and the colonized parts of themselves uh and and this isn't what fanon said as hannah arant is going to point out he was not calling for that kind of violence and and yet because sartre put that right in the front of the book uh, it was a misreading that was going to have, uh, you know, a, a long tail, if you will, and uh, kind of tag Fanon as more, uh, more an advocate of violence than in fact he was. He did think that oppressed people needed to fight. So he's a really fascinating character who goes from, you know, you know, M.A. Cesar and surrealism to uh, institutional psychiatry, uh, Adler, and uh, and then tries to sculpt a kind of uh, psychodynamic model of colonization and oppression that I think is you know being really revived today and there's a lot of interest in Fanon right now. Absolutely, and there there, there have been some very good uh, a very good collection of some of his writings that were yeah, previously unavailable. Freedom is fabulous. Yeah, no, just just fantastic last year, and of course. You know, it's mildly dispiriting for many of us to think that Fanon did all this in 36 years of life. Um, the most most extraordinary journey and intensity of thinking um, combined with 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 clinical work and, and, and famously treating both victims of torture and the, the, the French soldiers who, who were performing it as well, who were, you know, obviously troubled that that something that always struck me. And another figure, and you mentioned him earlier, George, I have to ask you about him because you're talking to an audience in Ireland, apart from me, I'm in Iceland at the moment, but pretty much everyone else is in Ireland. Um, Roger Casement. Um, yeah. Tell us, how does Roger Casement, how did Roger Casement enter into, in, in, into your story? Because I know, I know some people here on the call have uh, knowledge of and interest in Casement, who remains a figure of some intrigue here in Ireland. Yeah, I can't help uh, but imagine it'd be of a great intrigue. Um, so, yeah, Roger Casement comes into my story because I start to talk about how the ideology of imperialism starts to crack and break down. And I think the emergence of understanding about what was ha happening 
Look, I think there are three great events. There are three great events that that undermine kind of uh, this rather uh, uh, solidified notion uh, of who the stranger is and why they why violence is the appropriate response. The first is World War One, where ultranationalism seems to have led to the death of millions when actually propaganda was hyping how much difference there was between these two two sides. So World War One and nationalism became the uh, emergence of knowledge about the, the genocide in Leopold's Free State of Congo, as he called it, uh, was, I think, the second big blow. And Roger Casement was critical to that. And the third, of course, is the Holocaust. Um, so the second, uh, 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 you know, uh, in the, those that that unholy triad is, uh, you know, something that there starts to be a drip, drip, drip of information about what's going on in Leopold's Congo uh, that uh, involves a few reports, scattered reports. Then Conrad writes Heart of Darkness uh, and, and publishes it, uh, 1899, 1900. And it's a bit veiled as to where this is. He never says, uh, but uh, it is a, a blow to the general heroic stories in Blackwell's where he publishes it. If you read the actual journal, the rest of it are these heroic tales of Brits, you know, spreading their wings and going to Jamaica and going here and going there. And it's all in a heroic kind. And here we have this absolutely, you know, devastating uh, tragedy uh, that, that shows a great complicity uh, of the colonized, of the colonists. Uh, and the in the metropole. Uh, and so uh, Caseman had met Conrad uh, because they both had worked uh, essentially in the Congo. Uh, and Caseman had, uh, you know, taken a job uh, and finally had a position of power so that when the British government uh, decided they needed to investigate uh, what was going on in the Congo, Roger Caseman was in the political position to be asked to do that. And what he saw so horrified him, he came back with a 65 page report. He knew it was gonna be censored and maybe suppressed. And so he went to meet Conrad to ask for support. Conrad was had achieved some fame and Conrad put him in touch with some people who started a, a to advocate for the full release of Caseman's report. He meets this guy Morell, who is a kind of a pamphleteer and they start, uh, and he starts the Congo Reform Associations, which spread all around the West, all around the West. So now there's little communities who are anti-imperialist because of the revelations about the Congo. It's more than just the Congo. It's in Boston. It's in New York. It's organizing people thinking about there are potential evils here. And then, you know, there are the photographs, which become uh, absolutely devastating of all of the of people from the Congo with their hands cut off. Uh, and uh, what becomes clear when Caseman report, report emerges is that there is something close to, it's not the word that's used at the time, but close to a genocide. Uh, so Caseman becomes lauded by the British government, which is very proud of having uh, him uh, in their service before, of course, he's executed uh, not so long uh, uh, later, uh, because yes, he has one extra trip he goes to, uh, to, to the Putumaya Indians. He says the same bad thing is happening in uh, Latin America. He comes back, he's lauded, he's, 
He is Sir Roger Casement. Uh, and then, of course, he is for the Irish cause. And in that, uh, you know, attempt to get arms to the 1916 uh, rebellion, uh, he is caught and he uh, is going to be executed. It's not clear diaries about his uh, being gay uh, are leaked, and that seems to seal the deal, and he is, in fact, executed. Yes, it, I mean, it's one of these absolutely extraordinary stories, and I guess what struck me is, you know, a great deal of what we read is about Caseman's life and so forth, but the sheer magnitude and impact of his his work, um, you know, it's 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 so good to see it taking its place in this in this history that you present. Yeah, um, he's a powerful figure. No, he, he absolutely is. Well, okay, so look, there's one other figure I want to talk a little. I want to ask you a tiny bit about before we come to the present day and one of the questions we've gotten in there. Um, so um, I want to ask about Foucault, who is you know beloved of um, many academics, philosophers certain historians, sociologists, and so forth. Um, and you write about Foucault as well. I think psychiatrists tend to have less time, perhaps, let's say, uh, for Foucault, but he is uh, unavoidable in other disciplines, the history of art and everything, all kinds of places he pops up. But you talk a little bit, you talk about him in the book. Do you want to yeah. tell us maybe a tiny bit, tiny bit about Foucault, or how you see him fitting in, or your, your, your views about that, George? Yeah, look, I think there's a, Foucault is extraordinarily prolific. There's a lot that he wrote. Um, and so, you know, one can get uh, caught up in one particular part of his oeuvre and not see the whole picture. So, yeah, his his book, his book on the history of psychiatry is, uh, I think, particularly problematic. It is written with extraordinary uh, eloquence and uh, has had at the time a revolutionary kind of uh, approach. Uh, and um, you know, much of the factual basis turns out to be um, uh, at least half wrong, sometimes completely wrong. So, so it, it's a highly problematic text as anything more than uh, uh, a way of thinking about doing history, a way, a methodology. And that's really where I think Foucault ends up being important in my story is that he ends up being an advocate for a kind of structuralist model of knowledge and power. And in that, I think uh, sociology more than anything else of power, he uh, you know isn't uh, utterly original, but he uh, organizes a lot of thinking about how institutions uh, and how organizations and how you know, kind of uh, cultures can uh, uh, manage uh, uh, to ostracize and exclude uh, and differentiate uh, populations and exert power. So that's the way that I ended up thinking that Foucault added to my story. Like I, this is a book that's not 10,000 pages long. So I made choices about what I was going to take insofar as I thought they they added to our understanding of xenophobia. And with Foucault, I really thought the, the other models that we have involve psychological intention, whether conscious or unconscious, it's psychological intention. And what, what Foucault adds to that is a notion that, you know, for instance, today we have uh, 
a lot of debates in the United States about critical race theory, et cetera, et cetera. There is a model that Foucault helped put forward that says, you know, you can be part of, uh, I'll give you an example. My medical school in the 50s had a quota for how many Jewish medical students it would take. It was just the way things were done. There were, I don't remember what the number was, maybe 5% or 7% or something like that. And was everyone in that institution anti-Semitic? No, of course not. But somehow anti-Semitism had leached into the institutional ethos, into the into the walls of the place, if you will, into the rules and the conventions and the culture so that people without thinking were simply following rules that led to differentiated outcomes that were racist and exclusionary, anti-Semitic and exclusionary. Uh, so Foucault is very good about that. Foucault is very good about how institutions end up in this um, impersonal way, exerting authority and power. And in that way, I thought he really adds to the discussion. No, and he, he, he does, he does. It's, it's a fascinating discussion of Foucault. And, and toward the end, as you say, you, 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 all of this is, is drawn together into the model that you've mentioned. I wanna to switch to today and look at a question that came in there that says, um, you mentioned how your grandfather became became a Texan prior to moving back to Lebanon. Yeah. And the classic American identity story so often includes an immigration melting pot story. Have you any insight or opinion about, about how xenophobia has written, risen to such levels within a country with such a strong historical tradition of immigration and assimilation? Yeah, no, it's a it's a great question. And it's kind of a red thread that goes throughout the book is like, how does this happen in a country like you could say, OK, they're they're isolated nation states that are pretty, quote, homogenous. P.S. Claims of homogeny are homogeneity are almost always mythic. So let's start with that. Like the the, the, the French claim that we are all French. If this is a fabulous thing that Sarkozy said recently, France for the French. Uh, and all my French friends think it's quite hilarious that a guy with the last name Sarkozy would say that, you know, uh, not a French name. So, but that having been said, America more than any other place is a, is a, is a land of immigrants. How, why, I, I guess, and how does this happen here? Uh, and, you know, I think that does force us to think about uh, ways that identity becomes problematized and ways that national identity becomes uh, uh, fractured. So I would say like one of the standard techniques for a diverse population that's having a very hard time figuring out it's one nation is to have a common enemy. That enemy can be internal, it can be external. I mean, we're gonna see this right now. I mean, this is all as, as, as <laughs> this is the news of the day is that there is a capacity for nations to fall apart. How do they stop from falling apart? Well, the most, the oldest way in the world is to have a common enemy and to, you know, to, to go to war against the common enemy. And if the enemy is fantastical and therefore, you know, potentially eternal, even better, because then you can always keep rousing the populace, which has regional differences, not just in the United States, but I would want, I'm gonna I'm gonna say almost everywhere. Like, show me a place that doesn't when you dig in deep, have lots of little tribes that came together who have local differences. 
So yes, in the United States, we've had you know strong history of inclusion and strong history of exclusion, and that's the uh, contradiction of the United States. You know, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, uh, except obviously the slaves, uh, and except the indigenous people, and except the women. And so these are the contradictions of America that we as Americans have to try to resolve. But they exist in many, many other places. And so uh, uh, I appreciate the question. Uh, um, and I would have to go on and on and on. I don't want to do that to, 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 to go further into the answer. Uh, I would urge you to read the book. It, it's a red thread throughout the book. Well, I, I, I too would urge you to read the book because it's a very good book. Red thread um, or, 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 uh, or, what, or um, whatever. So, but is the, you know, is... When you talk about inclusion, is exclusion not a mandatory and necessary part of that phrase? Surely inclusion does not exist without exclusion. Yeah. Is, is this, to what extent is this inevitable or should we aim to manage or reshape rather than eliminate or what? Yeah, no, it's a very good question that, you know, any nation uh, is any self requires borders. Uh, a self stops here and the other starts there. A nation stops here and the other nation starts there. So the, the idea that there would be a border and therefore a in and an out, an us and a them, a me and a you is in, kind of definitional. I mean, it's, it's, it's part of the notion of a self is that there's some place by, in which the self stops existing and another exists. And in fact, the other can give great definition to the self. That's what I was talking about before. So, you know, uh, all of that, I think, goes without saying this is not. And I think people who say and I've heard that there are folks, for instance, in the UK who say, if you talk about immigration, you're a xenophobe. I think that's nonsense. I think every nation has the right to think about its borders and to think about how porous they should be. What we're talking about with xenophobia is a highly charged ideological way of managing those borders and of uh, <clears throat> uh, of 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 uh, you know demonizing those who are outside, not simply finding difference. Difference says I'm me and you're you. Difference makes the world rich and interesting. Uh, you know, this is part of the counter enlightenment argument that you know uh, Herder and other people put forward with the Napoleonic Wars, and it's been a conservative argument ever since, is like they're trying to take away our Pilsner and our Lederhosen and make everything rational and rule-based. No, we like our, we like, we like our Pilsner. That's never really been what the Enlightenment value, uh, values ha have dictated. They've dictated equal human rights. That's different from allowing for difference. So I think these things get confused and then it seems like, well, everyone has the right to uh, be you know, exclusionary. And of course they do, but by what principles? You know, I say if, if it's really economic, the two, the two principles that people throw up as countervailing arguments to xenophobia, one is the economic argument. These people are overwhelming us, undermining our uh, you know, labor, uh, a value and therefore challenging our way of life. Okay. If in fact that's the case, that's not xenophobia. I agree. 
It's almost never the case. But if that is in fact the case, and you can empirically show that these, you know, 0.6% of the nation of Jews really challenges the French GDP and life in uh, Toulouse, go for it. It's it's a, usually symbolic, but it, but it's a reasonable, you know, rule out as we'd say in a differential diagnosis. It's also a reasonable rule out to say the culture invasion argument. We have a, a way of doing things here. We like our leader Hosen. We like our Pilsner. And these million Muslims came to our little town and made it a Muslim town. And we don't like that. Okay, that that's understandable. That's that's not except. It's almost never the case. So for instance, when you look at the AFD in Germany, when they made these arguments about all of these Syrians and North Africans that came to Germany, the people who were the most incensed about it were in parts of the former East Germany that had no immigrants. Berlin wasn't getting changed by the immigrants. I mean, a little bit maybe, but so, you know, I, I realize that those are arguments that people can make and they, it's fair to make them if there's empirical evidence. To my understanding, so far as I've seen it, it's almost never actually empirically uh, validated. And so they become excuses for xenophobia. Yes, well, and I mean, looking at the United States, there's an extraordinary number of examples where the precise opposite of what was said to be occurring was in fact occurring in terms of the numbers of people moving in different directions across borders and the movement of money across borders. And yet the arguments, you know, that, that provoke xenophobia seem to be readily received, readily accepted as if yeah. there was a pre-existing hook to hang them on in people's minds or hearts or whatever parts of people this kind of rhetoric routinely appeals to. Um, it seems that the, you know, you know, one of the boundary lines, that of the, the nation state, as it were, seems particularly problematic or prone to generating this kind of thing. You've mentioned religion as another parameter or line or so-called difference that can be used or, or, or emerges as causing this. I mean, we could move to an extraordinarily high level of abstraction here and say that Buddhism teaches us there is no self. There's no way of identifying where I end and where you begin. And therefore, any crispness about the self or about one's group is misplaced to begin with. And the consequences flowing from it are therefore wrong um, and unsustainable. And that seems especially true if the self is a state, a country where a line is drawn on a map, often quasi-randomly following, you know, settlements following after the various wars, as if there are crisp differences. And then we have, um, you know, novels and movies and that showing all the, the porousness of these borders constantly, you know, stories of love across the enemy lines are such a staple, and yet they, the enemy lines remain the enemy lines. Um, bizarrely, which, which is most interesting. Okay, so any other chats, comments, or questions? Um, or if anyone wants to say anything, if anyone in the audience there wants to say anything, just indicate it in the chat and we can unmute you and you can make a contribution if you don't want to be uh, uh, typing. Just just pop your name in the chat there and Courtney will, um, will let you speak. So, George, look, finally, can you tell me a little bit about your reader? When you were writing this book... Um, you know, taking these ideas and this story and formulating the book and pitching its its tone and, and so forth. Mm -hmm. um, did you have a hope for what, what a reader might take away from it? 
Um, the richness of the ideas and the argumentation is a given. Uh, but any, any, anything else in terms of learnings or understandings that you thought would be useful for people to take away? Yeah. I mean, look, it was uh, a, a uh, interdisciplinary book that um, breaks a lot of rules about how you're supposed to write history. And so it breaks a lot of rules that I thought I had to break. And so I had to be clear about why I was doing that. Uh, you know, it is an excavation of the present, uh, but it is also uh, got a framing narrator, which is memoirs from me. Uh, and, you know, I had to be clear that this was, that this all made sense, even though it's, a, I think, a somewhat innovative um, form uh, that, uh, you know, I think harkens back to kinds of critical histories that uh, were written a lot in the 30s and the 40s. And, uh, you know, I'd probably be lying if I didn't say that civilization and its discontents is kind of a an idea in my head. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, things of that sort where one freely crosses disciplinary lines to try to understand a problem that doesn't actually reside only in one discipline. And so, uh, you know, I thought it was impossible to write the book without um, outing myself, without talking about immigration in my family. Uh, that's kind of like a counter-transference like that I wanted to have out there. Uh, and uh, so, uh, you know, there were three legs to the stool and I had to try to figure out how to get all of them, you know, there, which was the the history of this story, the present dilemma that we're in, and my personal, you know, kind of history that 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 um, motivated me to write this book. And so, uh, yeah, I had to I had to try to find a form that accommodated all of that and worry about the reader um, after that. <laughs> okay, well, certainly this reader enjoyed it very much. I want to just read a sentence that you write toward the end. That is. Uh, you know, will, will perhaps help. Uh, you, you write um, and you demonstrate in the book, words and ideas do things. Um, they change the way we think and act. Xenophobia is one such word, and with its rise, there comes the hope that we too can stop the floods of hatred before they rush forth again. Might be a certain amount of rushing Fourth, I suppose, happening now, as you say, um, yeah, you know, and 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 uh, you know that situation in Russia has been there for years. It's been building for absolutely years, and it's so interesting when the international community or the news media or whatever it is decide a threshold has been passed. Uh, yet there has been this this steady build, and with this um, with this, we come to our final question from um, Pauline Maloney here. If you could advise political leaders today, how would you advise them on the importance of empathic bridging with the person they are in conflict with to help downregulate the differences and recognize the need for cooperation without public backlash? Without public backlash. So, mm -hmm. you know, I think there are in the book a number of ameliorative kind of um, uh, prescriptions that come not really from me, but from what I learned from others. So um, the behaviorists have a model that would be relevant to political leaders, which is habituation and exposure. Hang out a lot with these folks. Spend a lot of time with them. You'll get to know their humanity. Some of your stranger anxiety will diminish if um, these leaders 
Uh, I don't know. I, I don't play golf, but they seem to all play golf or whatever. Uh, you know, hang out together, exposure, habituate. That's one part. The second part, undo stereotypes. Stereotypes are can be toxic and allow us to think we know answers before we even ask questions. So uh, challenge the stereotypes you have of the other leader and of their culture. The third is, you know, uh, especially toxic problem of projection, managing shame through projection. Uh, and uh, that kind of paranoid solution means that I'm the victim, you're evil, and anything I do to you in return is justified. That's a problem where you have to manage the kind of shame uh, and, and guilt that comes with, for instance, the collapse of a superpower in 1991, you know? Uh, so uh, that's a that's a deep problem. And, it, you know, uh, and, and finally, you know, yeah, we have to challenge the conventions and the rules that are just structural and seem like they're just the way things are. So just the way things are might still be quite toxic. Uh, uh, all of those are the prescriptions in the book in general. I think they apply to political leaders. Okay, and you know, there's this very interesting disjunct one often sees between one's you know personal position and then when one goes to a political rally. So that you've you know at all times you had people who were, you know, very close with their enemy, you know, enemies at a personal level. They, you know, they, they they could love the individual person, but then yeah. you know hate the country or the race. Um, yeah. th there can be this extraordinary discontinuity within a given individual. Um, that that creates um doesn't seem to create tension within them or maybe it does and this is how it comes out um but in any case look we're 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 finishing up now and i'm going to brandish my copy of the book one more time um of fear and strangers a history of xenophobia and from yale um university press we've put a link in the chat where you can buy a copy which 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 you should i must admit i also very much liked soul machine I think that was a very important book, George. So your contribution to this field, which you have partially created yourself, but nonetheless is now a field, um, has been extraordinary. And thank you so much for talking with us today. Um, and there's various complimentary things coming in there on the chat as well. Thank you. Before we finish up, I want to remind you again that on the 23rd of March, Professor Jane McNaughton from Durham uh, will be talking about making breath visible in medical humanities approach. And there are more details about our other seminars coming up as well. So that is us for today. Thank you very much again, George. And thank you, everybody, for attending. Thank you, Brendan. Thank you, everybody. Appreciate the hub is here. a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures, stamping provenance Languages towards the history of the Taimoria Library. As well as being heard. The hub is a space contemplating Ireland through the communities this created by Coral The hub is about impact. The hub is for everyone. Here's to the next 10 years.